Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body inclusive non diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hello and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm your host Fiona Sutherland, dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia. And joining me today is circling back to my very first podcast guest, Fiona Willer, who is an advanced accredited practicing dietitian from Queensland, also another Australian. So Fiona and I are also called Fee Squared. Well, you know, it's nerds unite really in lots of ways, but I've never Named this episode Data Driven Meets Client Centered because really the work that Fiona Willer and myself do both together and separately intersects in so many interesting ways. And we hope that uh, the conversation that we had today, which, you know, is basically you could be sitting in a cafe with us or you could be sitting in a meeting with us. And this is exactly how we speak actually all the time to each other. So you'll either be bored, senseless, or be probably oddly fascinated I would imagine it's probably going to be one or the other but anyway I hope you really enjoy it so a little bit more about my very dear friend Fee so Fiona Willer as I mentioned is an advanced accredited practicing dietitian who combines academic research, university lecturing and public speaking with creating professional development resources and training for health professionals through her business, which is called Health Not Diets. Her research areas are dietetic private practice benchmarking, interprofessional learning and the integration of weight-neutral lifestyle approaches, including health at every size and the non-diet approach, into the practice of health professionals, particularly dietitians. She is also the creator of the innovative and really, really amazing Unpacking Weight Science Professional Development Podcast. Fiona undoubtedly has great enthusiasm for both interrogating weight research and overusing food and eating metaphors in everyday life. Uh, as you will hear, she has an incredible sense of humor as well as a complete nerd out attitude, which I absolutely adore. And there's nobody quite like Fee. So I really hope you that you enjoy this episode as we really dig down into some of the um, weight science and unpack what it really means to be a weight inclusive dietitian, uh, as well as understanding what Fee's wishes are for our profession moving forward as she joins the board of the Dietitians Association of Australia right through to 2021, I think, or maybe it's even 2022. I might need to check on that. Alrighty, so I hope you really enjoy this episode and I'll leave you to it with hopefully your favourite cold or warm beverage in hand. Thanks for being here. Hello, Fiona Willer, and welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Well, welcome back, actually, because yes. you were my very first guest. I was honoured to be your very first guest, and I'm very thrilled to be back. So welcome. From from this, well, last time was from central Queensland. You're still in central Queensland, but not I, for long. I'm not. Yeah, we're moving back in about five weeks, which is kind of mind-blowing. Exciting, stressful, all the things, but... Um, um, I have liked my time up here, but I'm ready to come back to the big city now. Yeah, ready for some shops that are... Shops, theatre, <laughs> uh, live music. Oh, I'm ready for Culture. all the things. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Central Queensland. <laughs> it's very um, uh, geographicalist. No, how do you say geographicophobia? <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't know. It's probably classist in there as well. Probably, they, yes, they, there is classism. We have ballets and stuff that come. Uh, you know, it's not, it's actually not terrible. But the problem is here, I don't have any family support or you know, big networks, and so it's kind of that's been most of the barrier. It's not really been about being here. It's just a bit about being away from everyone. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back into my 
comfort networks. <laughs> yes, yes, closer to your people. Ah, oh, correct, correct. And now that the PhD's almost wrapped up, I will actually be able to enjoy my life. <laughs> oh my god! All right, so PhD wrap up. Well, it's almost wrapped up. It's. I'm looking at my thesis right now. I had it. I had the one of the um, well, the draft that I had to defend orally. Um, I had it printed by the the people who usually print my books for me and um, uh, publish my books for me. And uh, so I'm looking at it right now and it's covered in red pen, all of my <laughs> edits before it goes off to formal um, examination. So, yes, I do. I mean, I love it, but I also kind of hate it. I, I need to kind of break up with it soon. <laughs> it's like a kind of a tricky relationship. It, it is. It's eight years of, of effort and stress and... Um, joy in there as well I guess but uh, like I'm ready for it to be a finished thing that I can that I can look at on the bookshelf and um and turn into publications as well yes oh my god it's just like raising children oh the, the, the this birth has been the <laughs> longest <laughs> <laughs> oh. yeah, right my gosh yeah. so for those of you for those of people listening who are not aware of your PhD the kind of um the windings and weavings of your mm. PhD. It's so interesting. So can you give us a, a, I guess, a bit of a summary of what it's going yeah. to be about? So of course, as a Hayes dietitian, I wanted my uh, PhD to be a hazy PhD. So my topic basically is whether uh, health oriented size acceptance frameworks like health at every size and like intuitive eating and like basically all the ones that stipulate unconditional size acceptance and health focus. Um, whether that's a suitable uh, platform for in the di in dietetics, whether it helps clients to uh, support eating habits that are consistent with sort of longer term uh, good physical and mental health, and uh, whether our profession, specifically here in Australia, is currently equipped to do that. <laughs> Mm. So I got to really dive deeply into uh, the identity of a dietitian in Australia and, um, you know, what's performative and what is real and, you know, what, how we do things in practice uh, down here and um, how the clients interact with us when we talk about health at every size as mm. well. It's been really cool doing that yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. So in terms of the ways that maybe performatives might show up, so what would that, what did your PhD kind of demonstrate that that looks like or sounds like? Well, so my first study, I did three original studies for the research program for this PhD. And the first one was um, a survey of dietitians and it was an international survey, but in the end I've used just the Australian dietitians data because I had to, you know, you've got to sort of boundary these things so that they don't get completely out of control and you end up doing a superficial job instead of doing a proper deep job in one, you know, specific area. <clears throat> so it, it turned up in a way that um, when dietitians were asked about their attitudes towards haze and non-diet approach counselling, if they themselves were not haze dietitians and they didn't actually know the critical uh, knowledge points about haze. If they'd heard about it, they had a, they still had quite a positive attitude about it. There was this massive knowledge gap, which was kind of horrifying, but good to know. Um, where you know about seventy percent of the dietitians that were surveyed came back with an answer to that, like the the core thing about haze is that it's unconditional size acceptance, and that weight loss is not a, it's not that's not a goal. That's part of non-diet approach practice. 70% of dietitians either got that outright wrong <laughs> or didn't know. They were unsure. They took the, the middle answer. So that was a bit horrifying. And, of course, of the 30% that were left, um, a good chunk of them were Hayes dietitians, which was nice. But there were also people out there who were saying, uh, dietitians out there who were uh, self-identifying themselves as, as Hayes dietitians yet still had that the, the weight loss goal was consistent with the approach. <laughs> mm. And I think, oh my God, 
Lexi and I need to do clearer education mm, <laughs> around mm. that. But yeah. I think, you know, that's part of the performative stuff, you know, like the, 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 the truth comes out in the knowledge, but in the attitudes, it's like, oh, well, I, I think it's a good thing. It's exciting. I have a good feeling about it, but I don't really know what it is, but I'm going to say that it's good anyway, because I feel like I should do that. You know? Yes, yes, yes. Stuff. Yeah. And so of course in dietetics, it turns up in the way that we are, you know, the way that we're depicted on Google image search and uh, the way that hospital dietitians like to wear pencil skirts and be thin and be young and be female, all this kind of stuff, our stereotype, we kind of perform mm-hmm. and we're trying to perform professionalism and dietetics. And it's all intersected with this sort of, uh, you know, female heavy workforce in a, you know, medical hierarchy and all this kind of stuff. I'm fascinating to delve into. It's been amazing, frustrating and amazing to have had the opportunity to really get stuck into exploring the stuff. Yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's so interesting to think about the kind of both the performative aspects as well as the, um, as well as this kind of knowledge and experience perhaps insight gap Mm. that um you know that seemed to be revealed there it's like i'm aware that uh deliberate uh supporting clients with deliberate uh pursuits of weight loss is not only going to be unhelpful but could be harmful and yet i don't know how to not do that yeah and i do it because my professional association says that I should because it's in the clinical practice guidelines. Right. And like, oh, or maybe my boss, my manager, my colleagues. <laughs> That's, we've had so many cases of that, haven't we? I mean, I didn't, fortunately in my, um, in my research, I couldn't drill down to the level where, you know, um, is, is your boss forcing you to take a weight centric approach? I tried to control for it by asking what their, their preferred approaches and then what approach they use in practice because if there was a difference there then that could highlight that they were being forced to operate in a framework that wasn't necessarily their preference but they were kind of stuck there um, because of just the way that the workforce is yeah so yeah and of course like I also asked people around their beliefs around about volitional controllability of weight uh, in the long term, <clears throat> and about their knowledge of that, you know, the the five year outcome where most of most of uh, people who try to lose weight are back at their original weight or more, and they were weight loss dietitians, so self identified strongly weight loss counselling preferring dietitians, who knew, who clearly said, who responded correctly about the likelihood of weight regain, and yet, who were still doing that kind of counseling and I'm like oh god that's a big ethical practice insight gap as you identified before the insight gap is is just huge and I thought well what are you doing why Mm. (laughs) it's so frustrating to you know I I get it if people just don't know that kind of situation and I have compassion for those people and and really that's the fire in my belly to keep trying to transmit this stuff to the profession and, and beyond but if they know that and yet they still continue to and they're not prepared to sort of shake the cage and rattle their um, discontent with this reality up the hierarchy, then mm-hmm. it, that is really depressing. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if, oh, it's just thinking before that, you know, I wonder if, um, how would you say, how would, what would you call it? Maybe something like relational coercion or something like that where it's the coercion that we feel to practice in a certain way within our, maybe it's our department or maybe it's our Mm. practice group or whatever. I wonder whether then that kind of gets passed on to our clients, that, that coercion, because I think most dietitians, regardless of what practice area you work in, whether you're, you know, a gastrointestinal or, you know, a renal specialist or a pediatric specialist or whatever, you know, eating disorders, whatever, whatever, that I think most dietitians would like to ideally regard themselves as non-coercive, open-minded, compassionate, respectful, yada, yada, yada. When we're surveyed about that, we have no qualms. That is definitely what we perceive ourselves. Right. Open and friendly and all of those characteristics that we value in the health professionals that we 
go to, you know? Yes. Um, and I think that we also are. I think that's actually a reality. We are friendly, but it's these systemic things that we keep um, enacting on our yeah. clients that are kind of invisible. And, and we, we don't see them because we don't follow people for five years. We don't follow individuals that we see in private practice for five years. So we don't ever see the after after. Yes. And we also are quite good at vanishing away harms and blaming them on other things. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and one of the iterations of that is this um, belief by especially pediatric weight loss services that there's some kind of magic source when they see a professional that they won't be harmed versus just engaging in fad dieting and uh, let me make it clear all dieting is fad dieting but just engaging in what they would class as fad dieting out in the community is risky they would agree with that but that there's something special about seeing a pediatric dietitian who's going to help them lose weight yeah and, that's really interesting oh uh, just like mm, it's there's Mm-mm, no maybe no. not <laughs> Especially when the the uh, evidence that they're using to support that statement is from the kind of the kind of measures that were taken to try to control adolescent weight, um, sort of twenty twenty years ago, which was not like we did not put kids on fasting diets back then. Mm-hmm. It was kind of more sort of sensible advice, and the whole thing about you know kids will grow out of it. That that was the ethos back then. That's what that was based on not the things they're trying to do to kids now it's just absurd it's not the same these things are not the yeah same. yeah so in other words they're trying to translate the kind of um this in in theory what was kind of quote-unquote applied 20 years ago and then trying to fast forward it to today's yeah much more heavy-handed i guess yeah. you would say and very much more risky much more they're, they're assuming that the magic source was them and not that the advice they were giving out that back then was kind of actually, you know, balanced-ish when you look at it. Yeah. They've totally yes. sidestepped the reality that what the, the interventions that they're actually um, making kids engage in now are much more extreme than they used to be. And well, we do have to be in a panic about this, Fee, you know. Let's get clear. <laughs> oh, you know, that just drives me crazy too because I think that was me. Like I was the kid dragged to Weight Watchers and they, these pediatric weight loss researchers would count Weight Watchers as a professional intervention, which also just makes me want to vomit. But anyway, and then I think, you know what, I've actually turned out fine. And actually, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be doing this. I'd be doing something else, putting my brain to some other thing. And I just think, screw you, you know, I'm not, my situation was not one that actually needed to be so heavy handed. No. Like it didn't need anything. There was actually nothing medically wrong with me. So, you know, it's so, it's so frustrating that there, you know, this, the whole invisibility of the fact that the pathologization of somebody's body size is actually a harmful act in itself yes yes that just drives me crazy yes i think the first some of the frustrating part about it is that is the way that dietitians kind of get drawn into these narratives um and are then positioned as like the saviors of oh god the fat kids and the saviors Well, that is the kind of narrative um, that you would need to be able to continue to do that. Correct. (laughs) To put your head on the pillow at night. Yeah. I'm helping people. Have you actually spoken to people that (laughs) received this, in quote marks, help (laughs) during their adolescence? Like, you don't know how helpful you're being until you actually speak to those humans as adults, 10, 15, 20, 40 years later, and actually hear the... Now that the position of power isn't there, the power, the power dynamics are different. These are grown-ups, and better, even better, they're actual colleagues who are telling you what this was like for them during their adolescence. Right. You have to listen to that, but because it's not, there's little appetite to actually follow up these people who've been subject to those kind of weight loss interventions during adolescence. It's still like, oh, we have to do this, you know. We've got no choice. But also that there's something really um, 
erasing and silencing about the diminishing of people's lived experience. Oh, yeah. That feels so, it feels, it definitely is part of a trauma. It, yeah. It definitely is part of trauma for people. Well, the irony that it's the professionals saying to their colleagues who don't work in the field, oh, you wouldn't understand, when it's literally those colleagues who have literally been the subjects. Right. Who should be saying, no, you don't understand. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, but because they've got this, you know, because in the, the power that they have at the moment it, with that particular population means that they feel like they're, they're, the, they're, they're the experts on that. It just, it's utterly wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a, it, it's a justice issue at the end of the day. Yeah. It really yeah. is. It's like who, who gets the money, who gets the funding, who, who gets... Um, ignored, erased, um, yeah. whose experiences get diminished, whose get elevated. Yeah, it's, the it's whole thing very is very much a justice issue. It's gu guinea pig science. It's basically <laughs> rodent science enacted on children. That is what is happening. Because with adults, you you know the the informed consent procedure is a little bit more equal. Yes, but with kids because the parents are lining up for them to take part. The kids have got no hope in making an informed decision for themselves. They're trying to please those around them. And when and, they're, you... and, they're, and they're trying to get out of the weight stigma hellhole that they're currently in and, yeah. will, and, and are told that they'll be in forever. And the thing is that socially their lives might not actually be that bad in reality, but they've got their parental figure telling them, oh, no, we need to do this because death fats or whatever the reason is. And, um, and we need to get in early. You know, all the all the, the, yes. the justifications used by people to try to encourage the stuff on teens yes, without any evidence that actually that's effective or helpful and some evidence to show that it's probably damn harmful. Overtly harmful. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yes. No, notably, you know, yeah. it, it, this isn't just kind of a little byproduct. The fact that things harm in many, many other areas of research that's what we would be focusing on yeah yeah exactly but you know apparently eating disorder professionals their word is less valuable than pediatric weight management specialists mm. apparently <sighs> my goodness <laughs> we're kind of off track now but the, i'm glad we've talked about this because it's so wrong yes the, way that the dynamic is running at the moment it is and it's interesting to just have observed how this has influenced, affected and impacted our profession. Mm. It's, I, I just think as, a, as somebody who has worked as an eating disorder dietitian for well over 15 years, it's, it's, been, it's actually made me both upset, sad, frustrated, angry, um, and mostly sad actually, if I'm honest, and angry. Yeah, actually angry, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you got more fire than me. Yeah, I know, I know. I got more fire than, I got more fire than two years. Although I'm two years. Just, I'm witheringly fire. disappointed. Yeah. You know when you grow up and you realise that the grown-ups around you are just humans and you just think, God, that was disappointing. I sort of held you in much higher stead than that before I knew. Yeah, I, th I think my 10-year-old ten, my, my is definitely there already. He looks I'm, at me and just goes, <laughs> nah. <laughs> I'm happy. I want my kids to know that I'm human. So I always, if I'm going to have an emotional response, whatever's going on, I want them to witness it. I will not leave the room for them yes. to see that because I think that, that they need to, they need to have all of it. You know, life is not going to be perfect. And you know, here's, here's an entry. I'm not going to traumatize you, but you need to see that this, how things play out. Oh my God. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. um, yeah, <laughs> the, the, it's just, it's disappointing. The more I, um, I mean, I love dietetics and I love dietitians and my whole research field is, that's what it's dug into. And I'm a very dietitian-y dietitian, as you know well. Like, yes, you are. Engaged in the professional association, want to make a difference, want to do it in a structural way, all that kind of stuff. I'm very pro-dietitian. But I sort of, I'm less willing to um, suffer fools in the profession now because I believe in it so much. I think that's it. We really need to cut out the dead wood or at least sort of 
uh, refurbish. Refurbish. <laughs> we need new covers on the couches, V. We need. Well, we need a new. We need to like just get rid of the smelly, the smelly furniture. And <laughs> <laughs> recycle it to another area. And recycle. Bring in the stuff that's actually functional and sustainable. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear uh. <laughs> oh this is so funny and do you know what's the funniest thing is that this conversation is so typical of you and I when we travel together and you and I travel together quite a, a bit lot. A so lot. you know yeah. I, I know that at around 6pm or 7pm we're like Fee, we're going to have an early night tonight. Let's just make sure we have an early night. And then at midnight, we're still talking. talking. Oh, you've got to go to sleep. you got to sleep. No, Shh, you. No, you got to sleep. Shh, shh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Uh, I'm not sorry. No, no, neither, neither am I. Neither am I. Neither am I. Um, so, so you are undoubtedly known uh, have a have a reputation as the weight science queen. <laughs> uh, you so. well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, mm. you're that that's your thing, right? Mm. Is yes. is weight yes. science and your yeah un unpacking. Well, conveniently, you have a podcast. <laughs> I like things to mean what they say. <laughs> <laughs> Very clear. <laughs> unpacking weight science. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not beat around the bush. <laughs> so, Fee, for people who are not um, patrons of your podcast, and if you're not, Jesus, get onto it. It is like <laughs> the best. It is. It's like so. For anybody that that hasn't listened to this podcast before, I'm going to give you a quick description. It's you know how you just want somebody to read all the journals all the stuff you want them to unpack all the shit and you want it to, you want them to present it to you in an understandable palatable um easy easy to uh decipher fashion and you want them to deliver it in about an hour's worth with some written material as well you know how that's always been your desire well <laughs> this is the product that fiona willer has and yet another reason why we all appreciate the hell out of you oh. um so what's so you you and I are so similar in so many ways but this is one area that we're really different I'm like mm -hmm. fucking research Jesus. <laughs> and I'm oh. like fucking research yes <laughs> I know you're like, you get so excited and I have that head in hand emoji <laughs> happening happening so um so what are, so if you were to describe what are the main aspects of weight science that dietitians need to absolutely understand, what would those aspects be? Let's just start there. Okay. I think there is not enough recognition of the internal weight regulation systems that we have built into the system that are completely outside of individual voluntary control. So we need to be much better at understanding the hormonal regulation of weight and uh, genetics, epigenetics, all that kind of gear, and and the effects of weight cycling and um, chronic energy restriction, uh, you know, like the the implication of dieting as a behaviour on weight regulation and on psychological outcomes as well. Dietitians are not very good at that, and I mean we're okay at it, but we're not okay at doing the switcheroo hat from weight centrism to weight neutrality to like what so what is actually going on if weight wasn't an issue, what would be the what what are these underlying structures because we've just had weight loss intent pushed on us at every turn, and so it's very difficult to unpack what of an intervention or what of part of what we do with our clients would work or, you know, would change something, would have a, a measurable psychological or physical or a, a biomedical outcome without the weight focus because we've used a weight loss or sort of uh, energy restriction effect as our party trick to go, look, we're effective, <laughs> mm, mm -mm. right? And so um, it's uh, my hope with my podcast and my other sort of professional development materials and all the stuff that I do is to help people, help dietitians particularly, but health professionals broadly, to unpack what is associated with that 
energy restriction and what is associated with behaviour change? What's actually going on there? Because weight loss tends to get all the glory and it doesn't deserve it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that then spills out into all of our clinical areas. So recently I did, I think, one of my favourite episodes for this year. So it's one a month and it's only five bucks a month. It's and an episode bargain. Okay. I try to keep it low cost because I want it accessible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and the models work quite well. I think I want it accessible. I want lots of people to listen to it. But I, don't, I, but I also want to value the work that I'm putting into it. So there's that kind of balance. As you should. Yes, true. Yes. So um, because they're not easy to produce <laughs> in terms of getting across all, that, all the research first. Um, but I do love it. I can just follow my nose, which is really cool. So one of my favourite um, episodes this year was um, starving in the intensive care unit. Oh, yes, I so love that one. That was, I, that was awesome. Yeah. I did not expect going into it. Like, I, you know, I've got this list of the things that I want to investigate. And um, that has, had, had been on the list for a long time. But I did not expect going into it that I would find it so horrifying and fascinating and awesome, that, that topic. So yeah. it turns out that there's this thing if you're in a larger body or you have a larger body and you're in the intensive care unit because of course people all people have the potential to end up in intensive care on any given day Mm -hmm. for whatever reason so it's kind of a non non um gatewayed health service to access if that makes sense yeah yeah yeah. Um, Yeah. there's no gatekeepers to it you're just in it right because you're almost dead that's the thing and so um, having a look at the way that larger bodied people are treated in there versus smaller bodied people, even down to the kind of energy, because um, of course people are tube fed when they're in there. They've got tubes going in for all the things and they've got tubes coming out for all the things. And they're quite often on, um, you know, respiratory support and all sorts of other stuff as well. So that in terms of nutrition requirements, that the body is coping with this acute injury, whatever is going in there, and that's got lots of biological response happening to it. Um, and then, so that, that affects the amount of carbon dioxide people are um, able to breathe out. And so, for example, if you overfeed them during that, the, the, that critical response period, um, they die more because they're less able to blow off that CO2. Mm-hmm. Um, as part of that response. So there, it, there is a real nutritional need to balance things very carefully, which I find like obviously my dietitian, my clinical dietitian brain is like, ah, yes, there's all, all of my neurons <laughs> are firing in that zone. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and this is the point where you're like, woo. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, yes, fascinating. Let's, <laughs> let's do it. But then in the, in the flow stage at the end, when sort of the, all of those, uh, the, the, um, acute response uh, compounds that the body's producing are starting to be broken up and they're kind of entering into this healing phase. And so energy requirements typically change at that point. But for smaller bodied people, they get fed enough. But for larger bodied people, like in the literature and in clinical guidelines, they get underfed with this overall um, attitude that, oh, well, while you're there, why not make you smaller? Because it's mm. got to be a good thing. To the point where, like, it's written into our textbooks. Uh, something like the 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 difference if you're um, in a smaller body, the the uh, energy requirements. I wish I could remember, but maybe something like twenty or twenty one um, calories per kilo, something like that, is the mm-hmm. sort of oh, just on paper it, uh, scribbled equation ballparked versus fourteen for large body people. <laughs> That's not anywhere near, that's not anywhere near energy requirements to sustain that person's body habitus in that condition. That's way below requirements, way, way, for no good reason. And um, so so within that energy requirement, would the aim be to, for example, meet protein requirements, actual actual, um, kilojoules, uh, actual, sorry, grams per protein grams of yes. protein per day but but not not overall energy yes yes so oh, the protein okay. goal is in there but overall energy is mm-hmm. way down that's and so that itself though drives catabolism like right, 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 good, right that's not a good situation for a body to be in a, a high energy requiring healing phase 
basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, so they come out of ICU, uh, sarcopenics, so massively wasted muscle stores, um, hugely starved. You know, we've got you know, the being in a hospital environment, one of the main goals for a dietitian is to reduce malnutrition risk because that is associated pretty strongly with length of stays. You want them, you want them well nourished so that they can get out of there back to their yes. own lives yep. and not cost the hospital. That's kind of like the bottom line mm. in hospitals around bed days. And so malnutrition extends bed days massively, but mm. we're like literally actively encouraging malnutrition in these people who are already hugely compromised medically and for no good reason. So yeah, I mean, that, that was a really, like that episode just enraged me and I'm like, this has to get out. Yes. <laughs> and so, yeah, so that, that's kind of, that's the deal with the podcast is so I take a clinical area or a thing that we do in weight centric practice and I turn it over and I unpack it and I pull out all of its guts and I figure out what is real and what is coasting on the back of, of bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> and coasting on the back of stick, bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Gonna, what you know? What's a sticky thing, and what is only a temporary energy restriction-related effect that we're mm-hmm. seeing there, and and also talk about you know the social justice aspects as well. But I really like my niche. I've tried to carve out is that let's look at research methods. Let's look at the actual thing that the the participants were asked to do. Let's look at how feasible that is. Did they measure what they actually did, or are they using BMI as a proxy? measure for fidelity to the whole program which is bs by the way but like looking at all that stuff and so yeah well the reason stop it no (laughs) well i hope i wanted to stop but i love doing the work yeah well the reason that i i personally really appreciate it is because of course we know that research informs um funding dollars it yeah. informs public health policies. It informs um, all kinds of funding streams for services and programs. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason why understanding the research and why having someone like you to unpack unpack the research for someone like me and for a lot of our other colleagues who are in potentially positions where we can have these conversations, but we don't have the conversations at the, at the level of, for example, programs or protocols Mm. or, Mm. um, you know, sets of guidelines, practice guidelines, et cetera. Um, And so that is the very real place that the rubber hits the road. Like it doesn't just stop at uh, particular studies, like studies actually become something very real. And unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, sadly, frustratingly, awfully, that when when uh, research has weight stigma and fat phobia and um, in, inequities woven all the way through yeah. it, that goes down the stream, straight down the stream and into things like public health policy, um, practice yeah. guidelines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is what I find really frustrating. If I have been able to embolden one person in a research planning room to say, wait, you think BMI is an outcome for physical activity behaviour is an invalid outcome measure. We need to measure the physical activity outcome. Yes. I will be pleased. If I embolden one person to call out weight loss as a primary outcome measure for a study as a good thing, as opposed to couching it perhaps as a risk factor for other things because there's been this shift in days gone by you know like the whole the rationale for weight loss is lose weight because you'll reduce the risk of xyz right that's the rationale except there's been a shift because of the way that research is done in that it's short time frames and that you want well like researchers are they value a measure that is kind of has utility statistically so that they can show if there's been a difference or not So rather than actually measuring these long-term deathy things that I call them in our work. Deathy uh, things. (laughs) The actual deathy things, like the things we're actually trying to avoid, that those really important things, those things, rather than measuring that, they're using weight loss as a proxy for that. But it's not actually, that's an invalid way. It's not enough. It's just logic shift. And so, you know, if I'm involved with one person and say, look, 5% weight loss, 
you know, whoop de doo But if that doesn't actually translate into less deathy events, I'm not here for it. Right. Right. So I want those, I want the conversations to start to question weight as being the be all and all end point because it isn't. And I want people to be much more critical about when they read these studies and how they think that they might actually be applicable to the people that they work with. Because a lot of the time it's like just, again, it's performative science doing this because I've got some money for it and we need, you know, we'll try one of 1,001 different ways to make a human body slightly smaller temporarily. Mm -hmm. That's just junk TV basically in the research world. Can we, we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard. Yeah. Let's do better. Goodness. Yeah. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. Right. So if you were to, Hmm. If you were to design a, a let, let, I'm going, I'm, I'm going to bring this down to something a little bit more feasible, a two year, <laughs> a two year postgrad master's program. And it yeah. was um, a dietetics and nutrition masters. Yeah. What kinds of content would you say that you cannot omit that, that every dietitian um, needs to graduate at master's level having covered in their, um, in their training? Uh, critically, it is getting the difference between what is relevant at a population level versus what is relevant at an individual level. Mm-hmm. That translation up and down from the broad, broad population view to the individual view. The understanding that sure we've got like like how risk works how risk and probability work i mean i sent my dad's a mathematician and i was always a massive disappointment to him i don't know if i am anymore because of phd but we'll see (laughs) 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 but when i was at school at least i was a huge disappointment to him because i wasn't like like the maths i just like you know but now i'm a huge freaking statistics nerd god you are and i just think god genetics but anyway I digress so that the I didn't get it I didn't get it when I was doing undergrad dietetics either how important that understanding of if we look at probability and risk in a population and that can be quite we can be quite accurate so we can say like if you take a random sample of 100 people in a particular population you can say right well like 10 of them are going to develop diabetes in their 60s right we can be and that would have a high level of accuracy because it's a population stat but at an individual level so we're going to use probability we actually don't know who it is that would get the diabetes yes diabetes that's terrible but who would develop um blood sugar erratic blood sugar to the point of a diagnostic marker of diabetes but we work with individuals as dietitians we're not epidemiologists typically and we're not public health officials typically so, and there's this translation error. So when we work with an individual, we need to not give the people that we work with the impression <laughs> that something is a done deal. And from a weight loss intervention perspective, it's a bit like a statin medication where you've, lots of people are on them, but those people, that, all the people that are on them, are not, they're not reducing the likelihood of their own heart attack yes yes they're yes. reducing the likelihood they're reducing the number of heart attacks in the population who are taking statins compared with those who aren't mm-hmm. in a similar mm-hmm. similar um population in terms of of cholesterol levels if you know mm-hmm. what i mean mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so weight loss interventions really like that because they work on this this uh risk they work on a risk factor rather than an actual condition or event mm-hmm. and so when we're working with individuals I don't think I've ever heard any dietitian. I've certainly like, it's not part of our shtick as dietitians to say, right, well, your weight loss is going towards Susan's heart attack risk reduction. Yes. Yes. It's always (laughs) Susan. Right. That is how, how it works though. That's how it works at an individual level. You are not necessarily going to be reducing your own, like going, don't be vanishing your own heart attack or, or delaying it. Yeah, that's right. But in a population of people just like you, there will be fewer potentially than, than otherwise. But, but I mean, that, that it isn't, weight loss is not effective for that, by the way. But the, if we're looking at the rationale that's given and we're looking at the way that an intervention like that that works on a risk factor works towards 
deathy events. That is essentially what we're doing. And yes. because weight loss has such diminishing returns, it would be thousands of people who are dieting for the, the slight delay of one heart attack. Right. Yes. Yes. Right. And right, when right. you look at the yeah. numbers, that, that it's that it's those it's that 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 like critically because as soon as you see it from that level, you think it's it's BS mm-hmm, <laughs> that we expect mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. to do to do this stuff in their own lives. It's such a high treatment burden, and you know, unless that means really we should be pivoting back to what actually has value for that individual. What do they find that they can do that's pleasurable that does uh, impact on their fitness and their strength and their connection with others and all the the things that are actually in, more immediately um, uh, experienceable yes, by that individual. Yes. Yeah, it's it, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? Where a vast majority of dietitians are in kind of individual service. Yeah, you know, the, the, like you say, there's not many people working on a more population or large kind of community scale mm. i mean you know lots of people do run groups and things like that but that might be eight ten people you know etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah it's not population no not, um at the kind of government level intervention no no mm. and yeah it's um you know being skilled with appropriate uh counseling and therapeutic techniques mm. is extremely important i mean our bread and butter is really around human behavior yeah Really? We're, we're counsellors. Yes. We're not educators. We do a bit of education. bit of education, yeah. Part of the counselling. But that answer, that was in my PhD too, like this, what is what does a client value? <laughs> and really clearly you've got some clients that value an education session and they're the ones who want to come in, they want to learn about their condition, learn about the food, and then they want to go. Yes. They're not there for the hand-holding or the support. And But then there are other and they seem to outnumber the education seekers now. There are others who really want a counselling approach. They want someone there to support them through the stuff to improve the relationship that they have with their eating lives for whatever reason they have come unstuck with them previously. Um, And as a mirror to that, there are dietitians who are like, no, my job is nutrition education. This is what I do. I tell people that and that, but I would suggest that if you're in private practice and that's your mode of, that's your preferred mode of practice, that you might have a much higher um, new, like the, your new review ratio in terms mm-hmm. of comes back is probably, you know, one to one, one to two, something like that. But then the dietitians who prefer a nutrition counselling kind of relationship with their clients who are offering this ongoing support, they're, they're, they're there as well, you know. <laughs> And yes. so it's matching the client with the kind of clinician that they're going to see and recognising that the we can't have our head in the sand. Those who just appreciate the nutrition education side of things and just want to do that, that they're probably not best placed in a private practice setting <laughs> where you've got people being um, referred from the community who may well want something that, yeah, they may want to pick up something that you're not putting down if you take my meaning we have to be that is a non-negotiable absolutely but well i think that there's two things there one is that counseling skills techniques strategies tools etc etc it's actually embedded in behavior change models like oh yeah we only want that's what it is like we're we're so interested in we're like because my phd is in psychology so i've done a pan-disciplinary PhD with a foot in both camps. I've got supervisory, in my supervisory team, I have psychologists and dietitians and I'm being examined in both fields as well, right? That's not scary, but anyway. (laughs) Um, And so in dietetics, we've got this like, oh yeah, no, we we do find value in psychology and eating behaviour, but we're like, we seek out only behaviour motivation theories that are interested in behaviour change. Because the assumption is, I would just want to like, I, I want to help them. I, I need to get people to change what's useful for me from psychology, basically. Yes, yes. <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. Instead of being interested in these sort of broader human behavioral patterns and our biases and the way that social norms work and mm. the way that the whole society fits together and, 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 uh, and it's just so beautifully messy but also elegantly predictable. And we're really, we've, we're very siloed in what we're interested in 
psychologically wise in dietetics. It's a massive, again, a big blind spot. We don't know that we have because we're so focused on oh, healthy behavior. <laughs> so, oh, the trauma in this person's life, you know, is, is having these knock on effects and I need to get better at supporting this person to acceptance because it's, it's in, it's affecting their relationship with food. And that's my job. Yes. Like, that stuff. We're just, it's kind of invisible because of our sort of, we've got this optimism bias and we've got this, like we're foot soldiers for public health, kind of this is how we're operating rather than proper counselling clinicians. Yes. So, so when we're talking about, say, um, our role in education and our role more in counselling, I really get the impression sometimes that it feels like that is dichotomous or it feels like you kind of do one or the other. Oh yeah. And obviously mixed, you know, but yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, and, um, and the, the reason why counseling skills are so necessary, uh, why I feel that they should be compulsory and really woven all the way through our training and also then highly, highly supported and highly um, uh, promoted in terms of ongoing training is yeah. because we work with humans. Exactly. And, and we work with humans in closed rooms where that's things right. are shared that are not publicly known about that person. Yes. Kind of um, disclosures that people make to us about what's affecting their eating life and their body image and all of that kind of stuff. It is a, that, that in itself necessitates supervision, ongoing development of clinical counseling skills, right. all the things that our counseling and psychology colleagues have embedded in their profession. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I think there's also this this sense of, oh, well, if you work in eating disorders, and that's all well and good, but actually I just work in chronic disease. Oh, and yeah, I no, see no, all this, it's like, oh, what? Yeah, I no, don't see anyone actually, eating disorders. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You just don't realise it. <laughs> yeah. It's do a you, bit like I was um, trying to, uh, well, I was contacting it, but so dietetics, dietitians are not the only people who fall in that trap. That, that sure. Trap that they, they don't see, you know, X, Y, Z in people. But I remember I was um, uh, contacting some psychologists to see whether they'd be interested in coming to a uh, body positive counselling workshop that I was giving with a psychology colleague. And a uh, male psychologist wrote back and said, oh, I don't see people with body image issues. <laughs> and oh. I'm like, what? And so I'm like, right, I'm going to your website, dude. <laughs> and, um, and he's got all over, it's like generalist, um, basically a psychology generalist, anyone right. could go. He didn't have a really sort of narrow niche that he was seeing. And I'm like, dude. So he definitely works with humans. He's not, he's, no. right. he's not actually a vet or something. No, not a vet. He's not a vet. I, okay. I, we understand that it was humans that were paying him to talk with him. Got it. And, uh, apparently no one with body image issues ever, ever right. showed up in his rooms. I'm like, are you joking? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Mate, mate. <laughs> <laughs> quickly moves on. <laughs> I quickly moved on. Yes. Like, this is a good vignette, but you are sort of like lost to follow up right now, mate. <laughs> In terms of accessibility. But anyway, what's funny? We're just like uh, blind. Uh, like these things are invisible. Oh my gosh. So. <sighs> uh, look, Faye, do you know what? Um, do you know, one thing that I am feeling very excited about is that um, you and I, only next week actually, will be in Newcastle for our, yes. our very, very last um, non-diet approach training. We're year. super excited about year. Newcastle. Not the last for the ever, year. just for the no, year. Yes. just for 2019. <laughs> and then in 2020, we're having a bit of a change of format, yes. which I know you're pumped about and I'm pumped about. Um, <laughs> and um, so we're doing a whole day where you get to geek out over everybody. Yeah. Weight science. Weight science. Yeah. So I'm going to be doing uh, the ins and outs of uh, growth and development, kids and adolescents, and the ins and outs of how BMI is used as kind of to, to weaponize regular growth patterns a lot and looking at the original science as well as how it's ended up and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then what else am I going to do? I'm really excited about that, but also about the, the uh, around reading weight loss studies and about looking at sort of between group versus within group analysis and those kind of stats things and, uh, and BMI science as well. 
So garbage in, garbage out, and what that actually means to us as dietitians. So that that's I probably will put bits and pieces of other things in there, but they're sort of my main things that I'm developing now for that day. I have a um, I have a picture of you, not literally a picture, but a picture in my mind of you <clears throat> in one of your favourite dresses, <laughs> red glasses, <laughs> slide progressor clicker item in your hand, striding across the front of the room <laughs> as you unleash Bang. science nerdiness all over yep. everybody. <laughs> I'm going to have a massive brain explosion. It's going to be magnificent. Everyone. It's going to be great. For I will go, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm going to enjoy it immensely. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully the people who come will too. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> and then on day two, we're going to be doing, oh, I'm just such a, um, a principles to practice. I'm a nerd in a totally different way. You are, you are counselling application nerd. Yes, human, I know. Human nerd. Yeah. That's, I'm That's all... why we work really well together. I know. I know. Absolutely. We both stride mm. in a different mm. way. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so day two next year, 2020 is going to be principles to practice. Um, you're talking about all kinds of... Um, all of the non-diet approaches and how to bring weight inclusive um, principles into dietetic practice. So it's going to be yeah. 2020 is going to be actually a massive year for both of us yeah. in lots of ways, but um, that's for another episode, I think. Fee. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. So just a reminder where people can find you on Instagram and website and podcast if you don't mind running us through yep. that please Faith. so my handle on twitter and instagram is at fiona willer not difficult and uh my uh, website for dietitians is healthnotdiets.com and the unpacking weight science project materials which is like a course and the podcast um and various other bits and pieces is on unpackingweightscience.com Yay, that is awesome. Okay, so to get your Geekarama outlet, then um, make sure you go over to Fee's um, website and follow her over all the platforms. Fee is a prolific Twitterer. And <laughs> if you want to see somebody who is unapologetic and fierce on Twitter, then she is going to be your le like, when it comes to Twitter, I back away slowly. I'm like, oh, I know. I love Twitter. You just love come Twitter. at me. Just let me, let me just get at you on Twitter, yeah. basically. Whereas my preference is for the warm bosom of Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I like Instagram, but I, I can't fight with people on Instagram so much. So that's no, why I, know. I like Twitter. Yeah. Instagram is more of an educational platform for me, like in terms of the way that I use my account. It's the, here's a weight science concept. Let me unpack it for you a bit. And we can talk about it as well. But, but I, like, I want people to be able to go through my feed on Insta and like, oh yeah, that concept, that concept, that concept. Because it's yeah. quite, you know, because I love graphs and Instagram's <laughs> a visual medium. And so I get to really sort of like pick apart what, what the graphs actually mean on Insta. So I quite like that. Yes. But on Twitter, like if you want to have a convo and, oh, just it's great. Because you know, like Twitter kind of mirrors the blood sport that is academia. <laughs> and, but it's faster moving. So it's kind of exciting in that way. You've got your trolls and in, and in academia, you've got your trolls as well. They're just people who work in the same kind of field, but they have a different theoretical approach or a different, you know, they, their frame is different. And so Twitter is kind of like an expression of that. And instead of waiting for one paper to combat another paper in the, in, you know, like in academic journals, which just takes a thousand years, it's like a fight that takes the 10 years to resolve. <laughs> On Twitter, it's like bang, 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 and you've got witnesses and it's just excellent. <laughs> I love Twitter. <laughs> Where yeah, I think I think um, Instagram as a um, as a perfectionistic conflict avoider is um, for most people. <laughs> I'm still going to call it the warm bosom. Yeah, yeah. Well, your account is your profile is on Twitter. Oh, not Twitter on Instagram. Yeah, I, yeah. It's just my <laughs> my warm place. Oh, <laughs> uh, Fee. All right. Well, um, in person, I will see you next week. We'll be flying from opposite ends of the country to meet. Not in the middle of the country, but we'll kind of be meeting. Actually, we kind of will be meeting halfway. Yeah, it is almost exactly yeah, halfway. Yeah, it is kind of halfway, which mm. is different for us. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, then we will hopefully be bringing you some team episodes, some more team episodes here next year so that we can keep unleashing and yeah. sharing all the geeky slash human centered goodness <laughs> between us. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so you have a great day. I will see you next Thanks. week. And thank you so much for being here. Thanks everyone for listening to us. <laughs> <laughs> Natter on. <laughs> okay. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.